Hello there and welcome to Fill Me Up. I'm Steve Walker and this is the show to help fuel your film discussions. Um, so last week I covered a load of films that I saw at the cinema and I actually went to the cinema one more time this week um, and I saw New Mutants, um, which is the new X-Men film that kind of has gone under the radar a little bit. Um, uh, so this is the thing that I thought I'd talk about at the start. I normally talk about some bit of news, but this is what I'm talking about this week. If you don't like it, deal with it. Um, so the uh, money-wise, I mean, it's got a sixty-seven million budget, dollar budget. Um, it's made twenty-one million so far. It's probably not going to make its money back. Um, I feel like that's because nobody really cares about it because it was announced ages ago and it's taken so long to come out and there was such a bad kind of production and development process so i just i mean it's come out and it's got a 5.6 on imdb it's got a 33 percent on rotten tomatoes i thought it's all right it's not that bad it's a, i give it a six out of ten it's all right it like considering it was shot in 2017 and it's gone it, it kind of like in the process of like making it they it seems it's gone from kind of standard x-men fair to kind of making it more horror centric and they kind of gone back and forth with it and then there was the the Fox and Disney merger that happened, and then there was going to be some reshoots on the cards, and then they were off the cards, and then they were on again, and then off again. And like, I think I think it's just kind of amazing that this film eventually came out. Like, and the fact that it isn't terrible is even more amazing, really. Um, I think the main mutants are all kind of fairly well played. They're not all of them aren't necessarily likable, but. I think they're well played and it does kind of seem like these are kind of characters that were going to grow in further films and like it does sort of set up a sequel but like it's not necessarily cliffhangery so you're not going to be upset by it like ending when it did end um the horror elements that are in it um because the reason why they put them in was because they released a trailer and the trailers were all cut up by other people and they'd made a more horror centric trailer for some reason and everyone loved it because it was just kind of different and new and then obviously the production studio is just like maybe we should do that then um and i think josh boone the director was actually kind of more on for a horror stuff he wanted to do that so um but like i say the horror elements that are in it aren't particularly scary um there's some weird like smiley men that would haunt your nightmares um but that's really bad it and i don't think that it kind of managed to nail that tone but uh, because there was going to be reshoots, I got I get the impression that they were going to make it more. They were going to make the tone a bit more horror-y. Um and so like I think they just kind of worked with what they had because they didn't do any of the reshoots. So I guess that's kind of why that is like that. Um, the powers on show are pretty cool, um, especially Iliana with Lockheed. Um, Lockheed's a little uh, hand puppet dragon thing, but um, in the comics uh, it was. Is just a little dragon. So, spoiler alert: they, they, it may or may not become an actual little dragon. So that was good fun. Um, but I feel that there's not enough of the powers. Like a lot of the time, they spend the film kind of running from stuff. They don't kind of just stand and fight and use their powers. I guess that's sort of kind of the way that they're sort of being. I was gonna say brought up, but like programmed in a way. Um, the way that the plot goes isn't surprising, really. It's kind of quite predictable. Um, pretty much from the off, the kind of... For, like, for those that aren't aware, like, it's it's kind of about, like, younger mutants that are in a hospital, basically. 
but um, the hospitals kind of seemed a bit off. And it's kind of made out that it's kind of trying to be. It's trying to. It's a bit naive because it's trying to sell it as like, oh, they, they, this is like the the stepping stone to becoming going to the X Mansion or whatever, and becoming an X Man. But then it's clearly not because like they're clearly it's clearly more of a prison than a hospital, and it's clearly like mm, something. Some odd things are going on here, which I mean, I think it's a bit naive to be able to think like oh, this is different, like, oh, you didn't see this coming, it's like, it, this is clearly a bad guy place, like, I don't know, but, um, I think it's a shame that the X-Men franchise ended when it did, because this and Apocalypse, uh, teased the inclusion of Essex Corp, which, um, would, which, and in doing that, it teased the kind of appearance of a guy called Nathaniel Essex, otherwise known as Mr. Sinister, who is a big, uh, X-Men villain that kind of dabbles in cloning and other genetic stuff um, and it would have been really good to see him, he's like I would say, if you're talking X-Men villains, your big three are Magneto, Apocalypse and Mr. Sinister so um, yeah, I think it would have been nice to see him it would have been good to see another compelling villain, but they could also have botched Mr. Sinister the same way that they botched Apocalypse, so I don't know. Um, John Hamm was actually apparently cast as Mr. Sinister and did some scenes for the film, but um, it was cut, so I mean, it's probably just a small cameo part to kind of like tease him and build him up for the other stuff, but John Hamm's a great shout for that role, and like hopefully they carry it forward to the MCU because like he's not actually been in it, like so... I don't know, like, it, to me, it makes sense to kind of have a new a new villain and a new story for your X-Men in the MCU, and having a guy like John Hamm on board already makes sense to me. I don't know why you wouldn't necessarily keep that, so that would be good to see. But yeah, I think overall it's just it's, it's fine. It's it's what I expected it to be. It's not it's not terrible, but it's not great, and but it's fine. It, it's it's perfectly watchable, but um, it's nothing to kind of rush, rush out to see really. Um, so yeah, that was that was my film this week at the cinema. Um, I don't know whether I'm going again next week. So I used to uh, back in back in day, back in the day, I used to uh, when I first started the podcast, I used to try and go to see a film every week and talk about it. So I might try and start doing that again. Um, which might which should be, be good fun, be, be topical. Um, so yeah, so this week, I saw New Mutants. How about that? So we'll move on to the first proper section of the show um, that has a name and everything, and that name is Alpha Set. And this is where I take three films that I've never seen before in my entire life and I watch them, and they all begin with the same letter. This week is Q. Um, and so the first film that I watched this week is a film that is an apt title for the what's going on this year in 2020. It's the film Quarantine. Um, so this follows a TV crew who they are following uh, a couple of firefighters on a night shift. Um, and then, But when they get themselves brought up, when they get locked in an apartment block they've been called out to, they have to try and save themselves as well as the residents. Um, so it came out in 2008, had a $12 million budget, made $41 million, 
So it did, did all right, really, made a bit of money. Um, it's got a 5.9 on IMDb, a 56% on Rotten Tomatoes, but I thought it was pretty good. I gave it a 7 out of 10, and I thought it was a pretty good horror film that keeps you hooked all the way through. Um, so this is a remake of a Spanish film called Wreck. Um, I haven't actually seen it, um, so, but I feel that that's possibly better, because in reading some reviews, everyone's like, oh, it's not as good as the original. But So I feel like seeing this on its own, like you can take it as it is, um, which I think is probably better for sort of looking at it and kind of deciding what you think of it. Um, it's one of those found footage films, so all the, uh, all the everything's kind of recorded by the TV camera, basically. Um, there are a number of cuts in the film, but they are few and far between. Like, it, there's a lot of reliance on the actors having to kind of... Apparently, some of the takes were, like, six minutes long at a time and sort of things like that. Like, so you've got a lot of lot of stuff to remember as an actor. Um, speaking of actors, I think the acting for the most part is good. Uh, there's a jerky firefighter at the start, but don't worry. He gets his comeuppance. Um... Everyone's obviously panicked and frantic. There's lots of arguing, the police and fire. But, like, even they're clueless. But the thing that I I was like, hang on a minute, hang hang on. Um, people just had no respect for authority. Because they were just, like, screaming in the face of the police or whatever. And I was just like, I feel if I was in that situation and the police were like, just calm down, we'll let you know when we know. I'd just be like, okay, and I just wouldn't bother them. Whereas all these people are just like going, what's going on? Why won't you tell me anything? Like, because they clearly don't know. That's why they're not telling you, idiots. Anyway, I need a drink after that. I'm going to make a mental note. Don't scream on the podcast because it hurts your throat. There is a bunch of like, there's there's like a start in like 10 minutes or so where they kind of follow the firefighters and they're not really doing anything. It's just a bit of fun and a bit bit of... Bit of light banter, bit of malarkey goes on. Um, but once you get the call out and once you first see the old woman, for those who have seen this film, you will, you know, you know, you know, the old woman. Um, the, the, in fact, she's the old woman that caused the call out. All the fun and banter just fades and it gets real and it gets scary. It gets real scary. Um, it basically plays out like a claustrophobic zombie film. Um, is how I'm going to say it. Um, I guess that's sort of a spoiler, but... Eh, like, you, you can't really talk about this film without spoiling what happens, like, 15 minutes into the film. Um, but, yeah, I think, like, it's it's an effective film because it has dim lighting all the way through and you've got the limited view from just the camera, so you've got stuff happening off-screen or whatever. Um, and there's no actual score or music because, obviously... It's just, you wouldn't have like music in real life or whatever. So you've just got the sound effects of things. So you've got sound effects of like stuff behind the camera around and things. And I think it works really well. Um, the cast of characters are pretty good. Um, but I mean, like, I just found a lot of the time I just didn't really care about them, like the residents and stuff, like mainly because they're just screaming at the authorities. Um, but you also just don't find out much about them. I think. I've heard that in the original, in the Spanish one, they actually have, like, they sit down and do some interviews with, like, residents, which they, there is, like, a scene where they try and do that, but it's just not that very effective. Um, and, like, 
I think there are and there are a few moments in the film where it does kind of slow down, and but it's mainly kind of them trying to work, find like work out how to get out basically. Um, so you don't really have much of sort of like, who are you? Why have you? What's your story? But also, I don't really care what their story is, if I'm honest. Um, the main actress is pretty good. She plays the the one that's playing the reporter. She does go a bit hysterical towards the end. Like, almost out of nowhere, because the threat hasn't really changed. It's kind of been the same thing the whole way through. I mean, it is probably a natural reaction, but it's not very entertaining to watch a gibber, like a gibbering wreck, just someone going, <laughs> like the whole time. Um, it kind of just becomes annoying and a bit of a liability. Um, but I don't know, it just, it just is what it is. Um, there are some hints to the cause of the, what I'm going to label the strange behavior, um, both from characters and kind of clues were revealed towards the end, but it's never fully explained. Like, I feel like you, it would have been nice to have a two minute, like ending showing like a news report or something with like the aftermath and at least like a suspected reason just to help piece it all together. Just because like, yeah, you, you can like put two and two together and you can sort of go, oh yeah, well there's that, that thing there and that's what that guy said and that sort of makes sense. But like, I think it would have been nice. It sort of seemed like that sort of thing that it would make sense to have just a little news report or something. Um, I don't know. That's just me personally, though. Um, there is actually a sequel to this, um, which isn't based on the sequels to Rec. So I think there's been like four Spanish films, four Rec films. Um, but um, this the sequel is the, to this, Quarantine 2, isn't actually related to them. But maybe that goes into it. I don't know. I haven't seen it. Um, but yeah, we'll get on to some interesting facts. So a fully functioning apartment complex set was built for the film. Because um, it all takes place in this one location. which is So it makes sense to build just one set. But it's like fully functioning. Lifts work and everything. Which I thought was interesting. Um, and it's also the same set they, they use for Rec 2. Which I thought was, uh, thought was fun. Um, unlike most films um it actually was shot in chronological order so it it was shot as you see it basically which i think it helps the actors a lot and it will help like the makeup and stuff because obviously they need to they won't have to kind of come back and do the same makeup again to reshoot a thing or to shoot the a scene that takes place like a couple of minutes after so yeah i don't know i think i think I think ideally that's the way that you want to shoot a film in in chronological order, but I guess you want to utilize your locations basically and your actors and stuff. But because this was one location and like one set of actors, then it makes a lot of sense to do it the way that they did it. Um, and also uh, Jennifer Carpenter, who is the reporter, she asked not to see part of the set that kind of comes into play later in the film. Uh, so that kind of when she does kind of get to that point, her disorientation and kind of reaction to seeing it would be in some part kind of true, which I think was interesting. I think it's a nice little thing. It's kind of a bit of that method acting a little bit, but I don't know. I liked it. I I definitely would. I'd, yeah, I appreciate that. I definitely, I maybe wouldn't have thought that as an actor, but yeah, if I'd have thought of it, I probably would have tried to do that as well. Um, but yeah, I think overall it's pretty standard, but it's still a decent film and it's kind of 
all in one location, which is uh, good. And yeah, I, I liked it. Um, the second film that I saw this week, though, no, no, no. Um, the net, it's called Queen of the Damned, and it's about an 18th century vampire called Lestat, uh, who wakes from a long slumber to become a rock star. Yep, a rock star. And he, in doing so, he stirs the dormant vampires and wakes the vampire queen, Akasha. Uh, so it came out in 2002, had a $35 million budget, made $45 million, which means it lost money because uh, you got to account for the marketing budget, which is generally about the same as the production budget, which is the one that's quoted. So it would have had to made $70 million to break even, which it did not. Um... It's got a 5.3 on IMDb, but it has a 17% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I give it one of the lowest marks that I've ever given on AlphaSet. It's a 4 out of 10. It's boring and weird. Just don't watch it. Don't watch it. Don't see it. Um, from the off, um, so this was this was 2002, but bearing in mind, and so the music was peak 2002. The music soundtrack was written and performed by Jonathan Davis, who is the frontman of a band called Korn, um, who you may know did a song called Freak on a Leash. If you don't know Korn, just look up Korn Freak on a Leash, K-O-R-N Freak on a Leash. Listen to like 10 seconds or 20 seconds. That's the music of the whole, that's the style of music of the whole film. And it's very, I really like it. It could put a lot of people off. Um, I mean, I like it, but a lot of people don't, and it just—it's a weird choice. In and like, but the fact that it starts with that, you can immediately see people going, "Nope, don't like it." See you later. Um, but yeah, I think the music style and kind of the atmosphere reminded me of Blade. Like, it's trying. Do you remember Blade where it had the blood raves, um, which was cool. But I feel like he was trying to capitalise on that and the kind of vampire aesthetic in the first two films because the third one didn't actually come out until after Queen of the Damned. Um, but kind of rather than having lots of action and compelling characters, this had just posturing and boring sods. Like, it was just... Uh, it's just no good. And, like, you heard the plot. The plot basically sounds like a B-movie, doesn't it? It sounds like a direct-to-DVD... Something that's got actors in that you've never heard of. Something that you'd find in a bargain bin for one ninety nine. It's hard to believe, though, that this is based in part on The Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice and belongs to the same canon as 1994's Interview with a Vampire starring Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. It just blows your mind. It blows your mind that this literary series that's quite... Well, I was going to say it's quite acclaimed and quite people like the series and it's a bit of a, I don't know, it's, I guess it's more, it just seems more, like the fact that it's, I don't know, I, I was going to say the books, books are all but, uh, kind of a bit more classy, but I don't even know, I haven't read them, but Interview with a Vampire definitely is, I mean it's got star power, and um, including a young Chris, Kirsten Dunst, I was going to say Kirsten Dunst, Kirsten Dunst, um, Whereas this has um, a guy called Stuart Townsend, who is most known for being dropped as Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. He filmed a little bit, and then they were like, you're too young, get out of here. And that's his most famous thing. Um, and also, it stars the singer 
Alia, I don't know how you say it, Alia, Alia, I'm going to say Alia because there's two A's, Alia, um, who'd only been in one other film before this, and she actually died um, before having the chance to be in other stuff, Um, she died kind of before this film actually came out, unfortunately, Um, but speaking of Alia, she plays the titular Queen of the Damned, but she doesn't appear until nearly an hour into this one hour and 40 minute film, which is just crazy. What kind of nonsense is that? Um, But my main problem with the film is that nothing is explored in any depth. There's a secret society of paranormal investigators that sort of shows up. There's an intern that has some insane infatuation with the stat for some unknown reason. It turns out she's related to the vampires somehow, but I mean, who cares? We'd spent the majority of the film kind of flitting in and out of her life, but she's such a lifeless 2D character that I just just couldn't have cared less about it, if I'm honest. Um, and that that kind of goes for most of the characters. Like, the stat is fine, I guess, is the rebel vampire who just wants to do music, but I don't buy him as this kind of seductive, mesmerizing figure that he's supposed to be. Like, there are some ancient vampires that briefly show up at the end, but, like, and then they give, like, this exposition dump, but... Like, they only seem to be there to give the Queen some enemies. And, like, the Queen herself speaks like it's still the 18th century and seems to have no real explanation for where she's been or why she's shown up now. And, like, there was some sort of king with her in the past, but there's no mention of him in the film. Like, where what happened to him? And, like, I don't know, it's just weird. Like, the action in the film is fine, I guess. I mean, there isn't really much action. The speed is alright, like, the speed of the vampires, like, is shown quite well. I, I didn't mind that effect, but the fights aren't really compelling. A lot of the death seems to be done just by drinking each other's blood, I didn't really make sense. Like, there's some cool bits when the queen comes calling, but again, it, it seems nonsensical, because she kills the vampires, kind of, like, bursts them into flames. But, like, I don't understand, because she's, she's the queen of the vampires, but none of the vampires care about her and she's just going around killing them and it just makes no sense to me like in fact the way that people seem to become vampires also makes no sense to me because sometimes a human drinks vampire's blood and then sometimes a vampire drinks a bit of human blood but not all of them because if if you drink all of it then they die like i don't know the rules for this universe are kind of they're either convoluted or nonsensical in the books or the film just absolutely botched it which is probably the case, I'm going to say. Um, but, yeah, let's let's go into some facts. Let's... let's. Uh. So Warner Brothers had the rights to this, to the books for years. Um, so they made the interview... So they, they made both Interview with a Vampire and Shadow of the Damned. And despite having been able to make films of the second and third books after Interview with a Vampire, they decided to rush the production in the last year of their rights ownership combining both books and coming out with this abomination which is probably why nothing is really delved into and why it just feels rushed and you just don't care because it is and why the queen of the damned doesn't show up till most of the way through the film because she only shows up in the third book assumedly um yeah Anne rice before the film came out she said everything i hear about the movie is good warner brothers is extremely enthusiastic and they are working very hard to make it perfect I have no real news. Let me repeat what I mentioned in a recent message. 
I met Stuart Townsend, the young man who is playing Lestat, and he was absolutely charming. He had Lestat's excellent speaking voice and his feline grace. I can't wait to see him in the film. So that's what she said before the film. But after the film came out, she said it was a terrible disappointment and it mutilated her work, which you could not have gone from one end of the spectrum to the other more, really. So I just <laughs> like that. Um, and speaking of Stuart, Stuart Townsend, he's not all, Stuart Townsend is not only the name of the lead actor, but he's also a character in Anne Rice's book, The Witching Hour. And when they met, she gave him a copy and told him to turn toward this a certain page. And at the top of it, it said, The Life of Stuart Townsend. And he was like, oh, thank you for, for including me in the book. And then she was like, well, actually, I wrote this book like 11 years ago. So it was just like, oh. and And that's how I felt when I watched the film. Just, oh, mm, yeah. Mm. Hmm, okay. Uh, but yeah, don't watch it. Don't watch it. It's no good. Keep away. Put your put your get your garlic on. Make a cru- the sign of a crucifix. Get it away from you. You don't want it. Anyway, the third film that I watched this week is The Quick and the Dead. Uh, so this is about a woman who rides into the town of Redemption, where the tyrant ty- I never know how to say this. Is it tyrannical or tyrannical? Tyrannical mayor is holding a dueling competition for money, money, money. But are there some ulterior motives for why people are there? I mean, yes, 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 yeah, there is, there is. Just, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we came out of 995, so this is the this is an oldie, an old, old, well, it, it's fairly old. Um, It's got a $32 million budget, but it only made $19 million, so it lost quite a bit of money, which... Considering the people involved is a bit surprising, really. Um, it's got a 6.4 on IMDb. It's got a 57% on Rotten Tomatoes. People thought it's all right. It's pretty good. Um, and I also thought it was pretty good. I'll give it a 7 out of 10. Um, so the competition idea, I thought it's a great idea. It kind of keeps the film, it keeps the film's momentum going. It keeps the tension up. And it helps to introduce this like fun array of characters. Um like, the moments where the dueling takes place is just really well done. Like, everything's quiet, the tension's high, and you get sucked in, and you kind of feel the relief when it's done. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was really well done. The characters are really well fleshed out as well, like, in the previous film. The lead, played by Sharon Stone, uh, is great. Um, she's this mysterious figure who you kind of learn the backstory of through flashbacks. Um, but you also see that she's, like, conflicted. Um, Gene Hackman plays a really good bad guy. Um, he's got some of this gravitas and, and arrogance, but he's kind of got the skills to back it up as well. Russell Crowe, in his very first US film role, um, he's good as this conflicted preacher who used to be bad. Like, all the way you're not sure if you like him or not. And, that, like, it, I think that it's it's kind of good because, like, Sharon Stone's character also doesn't know what to make of him. So I think it's they've done it well. And it star also stars a little Leonardo DiCaprio, a very little one. Um, he's this cocky but insecure son of Gene Hackman, and he seems unlikable at first. But the more you get learn about him, the more you like him, and it kind of builds well for some of the later scenes. And it's just, it's just good. It's just a good little Leonardo. Um, there's a bunch of nice exploratory 
conversations that happen between duels. They kind of seem kind of natural. They work and they work for me. Um, there's a chance they could like kind of disrupt the pacing of the action, but I feel it's a nice break to the duels, and you've still got that tension because everyone's still like, "I'm watching you," like Roz in uh, in Monsters Inc. I'm watching, always watching. Um, so yeah. Um, I've lost where I'm in in my notes. Um, yeah, and like the tension kind of carries over into the into those conversations, especially when some of those motives come to light. Um, so yeah, I thought that was really well done. Um, one thing I thought was a bit weird in the film was violence, because like for the most part of it, it's all fairly standard. It all made sense. But occasionally, and like when I say occasionally, I mean kind of towards the end, there were some moments of almost comical B-movie violence, which, considering the director is Sam Raimi, who was known for the Evil Dead films at the time, it doesn't necessarily surprise me. But I felt that it didn't match the tone of the rest of the film, so it takes you out of it a little bit. Like, I wouldn't have minded that tone, but like, I feel you've got to pick one and stick with it. Which is what I've... I, I tend to say that quite a lot. Um, but yeah, I think it's important that you have a consistent tone throughout your film. Because, like I say, it can take you out of it in certain moments. Um, there's also some kind of interesting camera work that seemed very Sam Raimi-esque. Uh, especially in the jewels, like in the kind of the lead up to it. Where they're like doing the stare down. There's like kind of quick cuts, but as you would expect. But it's all like weird, funny angles and like zooms and stuff. Um, that again didn't really fit with kind of this semi-serious tone, um, but I don't know, just, I think it, for me, it kind of threw me out, threw me off a little bit, but I, it's one, just one of those things, I guess, um, but yeah, I think it's just a good time, it's got some, this colourful cast of characters, some really good moments, um, and some really good performances, um, so let's get into some little facts about it, so, uh, Sharon Stone, uh, who was the lead? She was kind of a big name at the time. She'd been in like Total Recall and stuff, um, and she actually had a quite a bit of sway in in people involved in this film. It seems because she actually asked for Russell Crowe and Leonardo DiCaprio to be in the film, um, and the only reason that they were and she seemed to be the reason they were in it. And Sharon Stone wanted Leonardo DiCaprio in it so much that she even pay to said that she pay for his salary herself which is uh i mean he's probably quite young at the time so it's probably not that much but it's still 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 it's a it's a thing um uh all the actors on the set had quick draw training well not all of them the ones that were involved in the duels had quick draw training and would often greet each other on set with a quick draw so they'd be like oh hi how are you doing and then they'd look at each other and they go well bam um Gene Hackman ended up being the fastest, apparently, because he had the least screen time, and so he had the most practice time, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and lastly, the guns used in the film were of the time, but they were rarely seen in films. Um, so it included a cap and ball revolver, or cap and ball revolvers, I don't know. Um, so they were like, used pellets, I guess. So they were more like the, uh, you know, like flintlock pistols and stuff. How they used to work, where they put the gunpowder in, they put the ball in. I think they were supposed to be, they were like that, but then they were modified so that they could fire like traditional bullets. And that was a thing of the time. And so, but you don't really see that stuff in films generally. So it was just kind of a, a nice little thing that they put that in there. Um, 
But yeah, overall, I think it's a pretty decent action thriller. It doesn't drag, and it's got enough kind of entertaining characters to keep it interesting. So yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend it. Alright, we move on to a film that wasn't. Um, and this week, as you will know from the title, we are talking about Harold and the Purple Crayon. Um, no, this isn't a prequel to Harry Potter, um, though it definitely could have been. Harold Potter and the Purple Crayon, because that's all he has in his cupboard under the stairs. Um, now, what I want you to do is I want you to think back to the best year in the entirety of history, and that is the year 1992. And then I want you to skip forward two years to 1994. Um and in 1994, a song called Sabotage by the Beastie Boys came out. And the video got a lot of playtime on MTV. That video was directed by a guy named Spike Jones. Um, you may recognise the name uh, because he is the director of Being John Malkovich, which is the film where you literally get inside the head of John Malkovich. And also the director of Her which is the film where Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with Scarlett Johansson's voice, because uh, she voices an Alexa Siri type thing. Um, but before he went on to make those sort of films, uh, he was making music videos for Weezer, Sonic Youth, R.E.M., and the aforementioned Beastie Boys. Um, the sabotage video played like the opening credits to a 70s cop show, such as Hawaii Five-O or Starsky and Hutch, and the band members played... Uh, fictional characters in the show that was called Sabotage. Um, uh, it was Jones's work on the Sabotage video that caught the attention of a producer named John B. Carls. Now, Carls was uh, had recently signed a deal with TriStar Pictures along with his friend and co-producer Maurice Sendak. Um, TriStar Pictures are, as everybody knows... They are a subsidiary of Sony Entertainment. Um, and they were looking to adapt a number of old children's books into films. Um, one of them was Where the Wild Things Are, that Jones would eventually go on to make in 2009. And another one was the 1955 book Harold and the Purple Crayon, written by a mentor of Maurice Sendak, Crockett Johnson. Uh, so the book tells the story of four-year-old Harold and his adventures in a world completely of his own making. So it opens with him wanting to have a walk in the moonlight. So he goes, right, I'm going to draw a moon and I'm going to draw a path to walk on. Uh, it goes on to include him having a picnic with nine pies that he really likes. Uh, an apple tree guarded by a dragon and a hot air balloon and a city of windows. Um, so Vince Landay a producer who has worked with Jones for a long time, said, Spike is Harold. He's an imaginative kid who, for one reason or another, has been allowed to fully explore his imagination. So, it seems like a very good fit for... So, Jones seems a good fit for Harold and the Purple Crayon. Uh, so, Jones met Sendak, and the two hit it off with Carl's explaining they're both still very much connected to their child self. There's a valve in all of us that shuts off between childhood and adolescence and adulthood. With Maurice, there's a leaky valve, and Spike is the same way. He sees the world as a big playground. Um, so, always good. Jones uh, was brought on board, and he worked on it 
on the project for a year. Uh, and it was apparently going to combine live action and CG in a way that had never been done before. Which can only mean that they have never seen a masterpiece with Michael Jordan, Jordan, with Michael Jordan, Space Jam, which is one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, and I will defend that to the end of the earth. Um, Jones worked on it for up, yeah, like I say, Jones worked on it for about a year. And Carl's recalled that in the third act, you had this live action boy riding an animated rocket out into real space where he battled live action characters to rescue a real space mission, which sounds kind of bonkers, if I'm honest. Um, which, but great, I, I really like that idea. Um, unfortunately, though, there were some changes higher up at TriStar Pictures, some new executives come came in. And they weren't they weren't buying what Jones was selling. They were like, no, 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 don't like this. They said this is too bold. And Jones Jones said they didn't like my ideas and they thought it would cost too much. Uh, the new bosses said that they wanted a jokier film, and so Jones complied to try and get the film over the line. Um, he said, I realised only then that if you compromise what you're trying to do just a little bit you'll end up compromising just a little bit more the next day or the next week. And when you lift your head, you're suddenly really far away from where you're trying to go. So, depending on who you talk to, either two months or two weeks before principal photography was about to begin, uh, the project was scrapped. And Joe's actually saying, said it gave him an odd sense of relief because he didn't really recognise his own work anymore. But, fear not, my friends, because in 2010... The project reared its head again. Will Smith's Overbrook Overbrook Entertainment and Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment were announced to be partnering on a Harold and the Purple Crayon picture for Sony Pictures that will be fully CGI. Um, The writer Josh Klausner was brought on board, having worked on Date Night and Shrek Forever After, which isn't that bad. It's much better than three, just putting it out there. Um... There hasn't been much word on it since, so in 10 years, with the only news coming in 2016, and that news was that Dallas Clayton, who is a children's author and illustrator with books with some great titles such as An Awesome Book, Make Magic, Do Good, and Lily the Unicorn, um, it was said that he was penning a script. Um, This could mean that Either Klaus's was scrapped, or it's a collaboration, or a touch-up. I have no idea, because like I said, there isn't a lot of news on it, and nothing has really been mentioned of a director, which uh, is strange, and there's not really been anything mentioned of it since 2016. I mean, there is a possibility it could come back into the spotlight, but I don't know, I'm not quite sure. But, my friends, do not be disheartened, because if you want your fill of Harold and the Purple Crayon, then then you can have it, because these were not the first attempts to adapt the book. In 1959, four years after the book came out, a seven-minute short came out, and it's basically a shot-for-shot retelling of the book, and you can find it on the interwebs or YouTube where I watched it, and it's fine. It's a thing. It's weird. I kind of like the idea... I liked uh, the idea of the... Uh, real boy on a drone's rocket helping astronauts out. I like that idea more, if I'm honest, than what was in the book. But you would not get that idea with 
without the book. Um, a TV series was also made in the early 2000s with Sharon Stone, the lead in The Quick and the Dead. See, I'm tying it all together. This was completely intentional. It wasn't. Uh, and she provided the narration for it. Um, but before I leave you and leave this topic, leave this book, I wanted to mention an article that I saw while researching. So, at the end of the book, uh, Harold becomes tired, he wants to go home, he wants to go and sleep, but he can't find his window to get to his room. So that's why he's drawing all these windows, it's why he's drawing all these buildings with lots of windows on it, and that's why you get this big city full of buildings with windows on them. Um, but he eventually remembers that he sees the moon through his window, and... So, the moon has been with him the whole time, and he goes, well, I'm going to draw a window around the moon, so then that's my window, and then he draws a bed to sleep in, he drops the crayon, and he drops off to sleep. And now the article notes that, although he has fallen asleep and it seems to end, he never actually made it home. Like, he's trapped in this purple crayon hell. Like, they say it shows what you can accomplish with imagination and kind of posits that maybe he wants to escape from his real life for some reason or other by immersing himself in this world that he can control. But, on the other hand, he could be trapped there and his imagination just tries to recreate something that is kind of familiar to him. A bed, a window with the moon in it, a home. But, at the end of the day, it's not his bed, it's not his window, it's not his home. Like... I like that as a concept. I mean, that's a film that I'd like to see. Like a psychological thriller where a four-year-old gets trapped in this nightmarish world of his own creation. I mean, would you not want to see that? I mean, sign me up for that. Yes, get that in me. Anyway. We're on to the final section of the show. And that is Quick Fix. Uh, so this is where I look at... I tell you, well, I don't look at anything. I look into the recesses of my mind um, and try and come up with a film with either a prequel, sequel, spin-off or reboot based on one of 20 film franchises and one of 20 film characters. And I smush those together and come up with something. Uh, so we've had in the past uh, Rambo in Star Trek, I think. Uh, we've had Indiana Jones. No, we've had... Buzz Lightyear and Indiana Jones, we've had John Wick reboot in The Matrix. So let's see what we get this time. First off, what kind of film do we get? We get a spin-off. We're having a spin-off of Night at the Museum with John McClane. Alrighty. So, we've had John McClane be in the X-Men franchise and doing some stuff in the X-Mansion. Now, it would make sense to have a spin-off of Night of the Museum um, with... So, to make it a spin-off, you have to have some sort of characters that follow through. So, maybe one of the exhibits moves. Maybe you have a... I can't remember how the Robin Williams one goes at the end, but maybe you have one of the Robin Williams exhibits moves. Um, in fact, I think there's... Um, no, 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 they go to the British Museum or something at some point, they go to another museum, maybe they just go to another museum in one of the films, and then you, yeah, because they go to the Smithsonian, and then they go to the British Museum or something, so, one of the exhibits moves museum, basically, and then they go, and then they find 
the no 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 it's got to be the main one because it's the tablet so it's got to be the egyptian guy so the egyptian guy moves to a different museum there was played by Manny, rami malek i think the guy who played freddie mercury in bohemian rhapsody which i've heard is a film anyway um so yeah they that guy moves to another museum john mcclain is the security guard there um and terrorists try and take it over yes no i don't know um but yeah i mean you could basically just do not in the museum but in a different museum with john mcclain basically is practically what we're doing here he's crawling through ducks he's getting he's he's going barefoot he's walking on glass in his shoes maybe there are some terrorists sure why not it makes sense um what kind of terrorist sort of group could you do maybe they find maybe somebody finds out about it somehow um maybe one of the uh villains from one of the early films leaks it or has some sort of son or nephew or whatever or daughter or i don't know whatever that kind of comes into play and yeah i, I don't know I think that's that's where you want isn't it um maybe he gets locked out of the museum maybe they take control of the museum they bring the tablet into his museum that he's con- that he is guarding and they decide to bring them all to life for some sort of weird reason i don't know um and john mcclain gets locked out of the museum that he's guarding and he has to work his way through the building taking out people and dealing with museum exhibits as he goes um i think that would be fun um you could definitely that's 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 the way to go i feel that's what you're doing that's what we're doing um so yeah i mean if you've got any other ideas of how you could incorporate john mclean into the night of the museum universe please let me know that would be cool you can contact me on twitter or at all at walker or by email at filmyuppod at com, and that is the same if you want to talk about any of the things we've talked about this week if you'd like to if you end up watching the harold and the purple crayon short film or the tv series then let me know what you think of it um or if you've seen any of the other films um if you've seen queen of the damned and you think it's also awful then we can rejoice in it how awful it is uh thank you very much for listening um if like i said if you'd like to contact me you can do um, but if you would also be a good friend to me, then you would tell one of your friends or more of your friends about the show and recommend it to them. And you could also leave a review or rating on your platform of choice because it helps uh, helps out and trying to get the uh, trying to get it out there. Um, so yeah, so I would really appreciate that. Um, if you do follow me on Twitter, then you will be able to find out what films I'm covering next week. I will put them out on Monday. It will be uh, set R in Alpha Set. So, yeah, if you follow me on Twitter at all at Walkie, then you can find those films out and watch along or not. Either way, it's up to you. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much for listening once again, and I will see you next time. Bye.